think of Luther, he was in Germany. When we think of Calvin, he was in Switzerland, although he was a Frenchman. When we think of John Knox, he was in Scotland. And of course, there were different languages at play. And so that uh, kept some of these movements, uh, though they were part of the Reformation, they had that distinct emphasis to them because of borders, because of nationality, because of language as well. And the Augsburg Confession consisted of 28 articles that set forth the faith of the Lutherans. They were presented to the Lutheran princes and the representatives of free cities after, at the Diet of Augsburg. And the articles included statements on God, original sin, the Son of God, justification, the office of preaching, of the church, of baptism, and of the Lord's Supper. And we see something here that uh, this confession set out many of these doctrines, what the church believed on these things. And that is common as we go through the Reformed Confessions and even the Westminster Confession of Faith. They dealt with these issues. They dealt with these doctrines. The Westminster Confession of Faith, at the very first chapter, what does it deal with? Scripture. And sets out what the church believes concerning Scripture because that affects everything else. And if we don't believe Scripture the way that we ought to believe it, if it is not our final rule of faith and practice, then it affects justification. It affects our understanding of God. It affects uh, how we view uh, all these other doctrines. And so uh, these titles, these chapters, these doctrines, these articles uh, deal with many important things and set out a pattern for the church uh, to follow and the Reformed Church and their confessions. And so the <coughs> Augsburg Confession uh, was countered uh, by uh, the Roman Catholic Church and Philip Melanchthon wrote a lengthy argument supporting the confession and refuting the arguments put out by the Roman Catholic Church. That document is known as the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. It's not Melanchthon saying, Dear Roman Catholic Church, dear Pope, I am sorry for this confession. I am sorry for believing these truths. That's not what an apology is when we think of uh, theology and the doctrines that we're to believe in. And when we think of defending the faith, uh, that is the idea behind an apology, defending the faith. And so the apology is not, I'm sorry for this confession. I'm sorry for stating these truths. But the apology is defending it setting it forth, saying that this is why we did this, and making a defense. If we were to make an apology for justification, uh, for preaching justification, uh, we would not be saying, I'm sorry for preaching justification. We would be saying, this is what the Bible says. This is what we believe justification is, and this is why we preach it, because we're commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so there was a defense, an apology, that was widely distributed throughout Germany. And the Augsburg Confession was adopted across Germany in the 1530s to the 1580s. It was also adopted, and I didn't know this until I looked at it, in Sweden and Finland in 1593, and in Denmark, Norway, and Iceland in 18, uh, oh, sorry, 1665. And so it was not just confined to Germany, but it spread to some of these other countries as well uh, that were under the Lutheran influence. And then we come to the Helvetic Confessions, the first and the second in 1536, 1586, 
The first Helvetic Confession was produced in Basel in Switzerland in 1536. It was written by Henrik Bullinger, Martin Bucer, and other men. Some of those men are well-known reformers. And the second Confession was written by Bullinger in 1562. It was revised in 1564. The second confession found more favor than the first. The first was deemed as being too short and too Lutheran. There were issues between these various branches of the Reformed Church and the, those that stood with Calvin differed in some aspects to Luther and so on. And so there were differences of opinion on some uh, matters, not concerning justification by faith, but regarding worship and uh, various other issues as well and the Basel clergy did not sign the second confession they preferred their own of 1534 but they had no argument with the second confession and it was adopted by the reformed church throughout Switzerland and then Scotland in 1566, Hungary 1567, France 1571 and other nations and it is one of the most recognized of the reformed confessions alongside the Heidelberg Catechism and the the Westminster Standards. Uh, then we come to the Scots Confession, 1560. This confession was produced and penned by various leaders of the Scottish Reformation. Was, it was the first confession of the church in Scotland and therefore it was fundamentally important to the history and to the life of the Scottish church. In those days, Scotland was separate uh, from England and so there was a Scottish king or a Scottish queen in this particular time period, Mary, Queen of Scots, and the English Parliament was separate, and that goes back a little while. If you go into the history of England and Scotland, you'll find that they fought against each other. You'll find that William Wallace, uh, the famous uh, Scottish hero, uh, fought against England, rebelled against English authority, and uh, the Scots like their independence. Many still do today, and there are ongoing uh, discussions, and there was a vote some years ago about Scottish independence. They currently have their own parliament again, and uh, that is uh, what they would call devolution in the United Kingdom. Uh, Scotland have their own parliament to deal with Scottish issues, uh, but there is the Westminster Parliament uh, that would be the highest parliament in the United Kingdom. And so the parliament in Scotland at that time agreed to reform the church in Scotland to move away from Roman Catholicism, John Knox, the reformer, John Knox that came upon the scene, there was Patrick Hamilton, first of all, who preached the truth. He was burned in St. Andrews. And then George Wishart came along. And George Wishart preached the same truths. He was burned in St. Andrews. And one of the men that was a close companion of Wishart was a man called John Knox. And so Knox had a history of being involved in the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. His life story is very interesting indeed. Uh, but he was one of the leaders of the Reformation. He was among these men tasked with preparing a confession for the church to believe. The final document contains 25 chapters. It sets forth a statement of belief concerning the Christian faith that formed the core foundation of the beliefs of the Scottish church. And this confession was passed by Parliament in 1560. Uh, but because of the Scottish monarch, Mary Queen of Scots, she was a Roman Catholic, was not approved by the monarch until 1567. It was the confession of the Church of Scotland until it was superseded by the Westminster Standards in 1647. And the Scottish Parliament ratified this confession by stating 
the confession of faith professed and believed by the Protestants within the realm of Scotland as wholesome and sound doctrine grounded upon the infallible truth of God's word. And you'll see something interesting there. You'll see it again when we come to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Parliaments were saying, we agree with this. We support this. This is necessary for the good of our land. And that is something that we don't see today. I don't see uh, Justin Trudeau standing up in Parliament saying we need a confession of faith and we're going to ask all the Reformed men and all the Presbyterian men to come together and set up a confession of faith for Christianity in Canada. That would not happen uh, today. But in these days, it happened. And Parliament uh, ratified the confession itself. Not that they necessarily had the right to do so. Um, it was the church that ultimately agrees to uh, the doctrine it holds to in light of the word of God. But Parliament had said, write a confession. And they then agreed and ratified the confession that had been made. And the Scots Confession remained part of the Scottish, it remains part of Scottish law due to the Confession of Faith Ratification Acts of 1560. We come to the Belgian Confession, 1561. The main author of that confession was a Dutchman. He died as a martyr during the Dutch Reformation in 1567. And the confession was first authored in 1559. It was revised several times over the years during the Synod of Dort, especially in 1618 to 19. And it contains 37 articles which deal with the doctrines of God, Scripture, humanity, Christ, and salvation. And again, it's one of the main uh, Reformed confessions of faith. And we see something here. We see Germany. Uh, we see Switzerland. We see Scotland. We see Holland. And all these nations had uh, the Reformed Church coming out of the Reformation. And all these European nations were involved in the spreading of Reformed doctrine and Reformed truth. <coughs> the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563. It was published in Germany. It was originally commissioned by the Prince Elector. And alongside the Westminster Catechisms, it is one of the most influential of the catechisms. It was produced just after the Counter-Reformation Council of Trent. The Catholic Church said, we're going to counter the Reformation. They had a council. And they met together, the Council of Trent. They made decrees against the Protestant faith and its confessions. And they ratified uh, the, what they believed to be the truth that Catholicism taught. Instead of saying, well, Luther's right. Calvin's right. And there are errors here that we need to address. They turned around and they stood against the preaching of Reformed truth. And so this catechism was produced immediately after the Council of Trent. And so the Catechism aimed as well to counteract uh, the teachings of the Council of Trent. And there's some questions that deal with uh, matters uh, that the Catholic Church has erred upon. The Catechism is divided into 52 sections referred to as Lord's Days. And it is designed to be taught on each of the 52 Lord's Days each year. Many Dutch Reformed churches, and they were encouraged and instructed to do this when the catechism came out and was approved. But many Dutch Reformed churches still follow this practice today. They have perhaps an evening sermon on the doctrines contained in the catechisms each specific Sunday. It may be a sermon on a particular passage in Scripture, 
And they're not dealing with a theological subject as such, but they're dealing with a passage that shows forth the doctrines contained in the catechism for that particular Lord's Day. And the purpose of that was to increase the theological knowledge of the congregation. And so each year the pastor would be preaching through the catechism that was a summary of Reformed doctrine. And so he was explaining to his congregation constantly uh, these truths every single year. And there are 129 questions and answers divided into three main sections. with the misery of man, the redemption of man, and the gratitude due from man. The third section contains expositions of the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Supper in a question and answer format similar to the Westminster Catechisms. And the Westminster Divines use this catechism as the basis for their shorter catechism. They didn't, they didn't steal it or plagiarize it, uh, but they used it as the basis, we could say maybe even as the inspiration uh, behind uh, their catechism or as a template or pattern for their catechism. The website of the Free Reformed Churches, and they would hold to the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, we do not hold to the Heidelberg Catechism as one of our confessional documents. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't agree with it, uh, but it means that we follow the Westminster Standards. But the Heidelberg Catechism is a, is a good catechism. And there may be those here, and in your early days you uh, came across this catechism, you studied this catechism. And it says, in this present edition... Uh, the more than 700 textual references have been printed in full for good reason. The Catechism contains more proof text than other catechisms of its day because its authors wanted it to be an echo of the Bible. Certainly that's what creeds, confessions, catechisms should be, an echo of the Bible. They take the Bible and they reproduce, as it were, the truth within the Bible, teaching others. And these proof texts were to be regarded as an important part of the catechism. And the preface says the scripture proof by which the faith of the children is confirmed are such only as have been selected with great pains from the divinely inspired scriptures. And then, uh, I won't read it, but there is a, a summary. Uh, really what we've emphasized there is a summary of what is in the catechism. And... The first question is seen as a summary of the catechism and the Christian life in a similar way to the shorter catechism's focus on man's chief end being the glory of God in question one. And so what is thy only comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the, all the power of the devil so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not in her can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live for him. And so uh, we have great explanation there of Christ and of his gospel. What is thy only comfort in life and death? And at the very commencement of the catechism, those reading it, those being instructed by it, those memorizing it, are reminded that in life and death, the only comfort is Christ. Christ the Savior. Christ the Redeemer. 
And there's that great mention of the gospel who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. And as an echo of scripture, catechisms and creeds and confessions should point to Christ and should point to him as the only saviour. So we come to the 39 articles, 1571. They were finalized as the defining doctrines of the Anglican or the Episcopal Church of England. These articles form part of the Book of Common Prayer, which is used by the Church of England, and their history and the history of the Church of England finds its background in King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII was married, and there was no heir to the throne, and he wanted to divorce his wife and to marry someone else with the hope of having an heir to the throne. And so he asked the Pope for a divorce. The Pope said no. And Henry VIII said, well, that's fine. And we're going to leave the Catholic Church. And you're not going to be the head of the church here anymore. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that simple explanation. Uh, but that's really what happened. And so he became the head of the Church of England, replacing the Pope. And over the course of 30 years, uh, these confessional documents were revised and expanded until the final form was produced in 1571. And the church in England uh, moved away from Catholicism into Protestantism. It still retained many uh, of the emphasis of Catholicism. And uh, it was not truly reformed like we would uh, think of Calvin in Switzerland or Knox in Scotland. Uh, but uh, they put together these articles and there are just some here and it stood against the Roman Catholic Church in article 19 it speaks of uh, the church and it says the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that of necessary are requisite to the same and as the church of Jerusalem Alexandria and Antioch have heard so also the church of Rome hath heard, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. And again, moving through uh, some of those, uh, the Romish doctrines of purgatory and of the mass are uh, referred to, the mass uh, being blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. And the Church of England has moved away from that today and does not, uh, has fellowship uh, with uh, those within the Church of Rome on occasion as well. Uh, there is much going on there. Uh, but originally here, uh, they believed uh, that the Mass was a blasphemous fable and a dangerous deceit. And these articles were coming out of the Reformation time whenever the truth of the Gospel was set forth against the Catholic system of doctrine. So we come to the Canons of Dort then, 1618 to 1619. The Synod of Dort in Holland <coughs> was called to discuss the issue of Arminianism. Uh, Jacob Arminius was a Dutch Reformed minister whose views formed uh, what we know today as Arminian theology. After his death, his followers produced uh, the five articles of the Remonstrance and that dealt uh, with conditional election, unlimited atonement, total depravity, but in the sense that man had uh, the will to uh, save himself. Uh, whereas the uh, position, the doctrines of grace, uh, would be that it is all of God, effectual calling, for example. 
irresistible grace and conditional preservation of the saints. And there's also that belief that the Christian can fall from grace, be saved, and then lose their salvation. And the Synod of Dort was called to deal with this controversy. We said in previous uh, classes regarding creeds and confessions that creeds and confessions help to protect from error. And often at a time of controversy within the church, as we saw even last week, there was a creed of confession uh, that was the result of a council that was set up to deal with uh, the heresy and the doctrine uh, that was involved. And so the Synod produced their own five articles, known today as the Doctrines of Grace, or the Five Points of Calvinism. And John Calvin was long dead by this point in time, uh, but there was an influence from what he taught. And we have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the preservation of uh, the saints. So the preservation the preservation of the saints. And so we uh, will deal with those, I'm sure, on another occasion when we come uh, to consider the Synod of Dort itself. Uh, but uh, these uh, doctrines, there's that uh, TULIP, and uh, that TULIP um, acronym, uh, T-U-L-I-P, moving down there, a very handy thing to remember some of those points. And those Articles, the Synod of Dort, uh, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism are referred to as the three forms of unity. And so if you come across a church that holds to the three forms of unity, you might say, what's that? Well, it's the Belgic Confession, it's the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's the Canons of Dort. Westminster Standards were drawn up by the Westminster Assembly. They met from 1643 to 1649. And the standards represent the uh, doctrine and uh, the governance of the English and Scottish Presbyterians during the Puritan era. A large number of Reformed and Presbyterian churches have adopted the Westminster standards as their own uh, doctrinal standards. We have as a denomination as well. Uh, we have added a few things. There's a chapter in the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a few other additions. And we consider that during the adult uh, baptism uh, membership classes as well. The Westminster Assembly was established by the English Parliament during the English Civil War. Uh, the, long, the Long Parliament, what is known as the Long Parliament, called this assembly. Uh, they sat from 1640 to 1660. Uh, this followed the Short Parliament, which met for only three weeks in 1640, after a break of 11 years without a sitting Parliament. And that was one of the causes of the English Civil War. Uh, King Charles I uh, did not call Parliament for 11 years and of course uh, there were members of Parliament and there were many in the nation who were not happy about this, the King being a tyrant, a dictator and uh, they came together then in this long Parliament. Uh, during the Civil War there was an issue of religion, the need for further reformation as noted by the Puritans and that was upon the minds of the Parliament and they called the Westminster Assembly to compose a new confession of faith, new catechisms, and a new form of worship for the English church. As part of a military alliance and seeking the help of Scotland, Parliament agreed that the assembly would bring the Church of England into closer conformity with the Church of Scotland. And this is where things can get a little confusing. When we think of the Church of England, it follows an Anglican Episcopal system of government. We have the Church of Ireland. It follows the Anglican Episcopal system of government. 
We think of the Church of Scotland, it's Presbyterian. And uh, the Church of England, the Episcopal Anglican Church, is not referred to as the Church of Scotland. It goes by uh, different names. And so you have the Church of Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, and over the years uh, that has uh, broken off. There's the Free Church of Scotland, the Free Church of Scotland continuing, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland that's unrelated to us. And so Scottish church history uh, can be a little complicated. I remember sitting in the house of uh, a man in Scotland, an elder in the Church of Scotland itself. Uh, He later uh, came out and separated from that denomination because of their liberal approach on many matters. Uh, But I said to him, Scottish church history is so confusing. There's all these churches and splits and divisions. Can you explain them to me? And... Uh, Some people might say you should never ask that uh, because it is so uh, confusing and all the issues that came out. But he gave uh, a very uh, good and concise explanation of the history of the Church of Scotland or the Church in Scotland. Uh, But the Church of Scotland at that time was Presbyterian. And as part of this plea by Parliament to help with military help against the king... Uh, the Parliament agreed that the Assembly would bring the Church of England into closer conformity with the Church of Scotland. And, of course, part of that was the sending down of Scottish delegates uh, to the Assembly and to influence the Assembly regarding Presbyterianism. One of those men, I believe, was George Gillespie. And I was in his church in Scotland uh, some years ago, not preaching, just putting my head in through the door and having a look. A very, very old building. And it was interesting Uh, to see. I wasn't there for a service, but I was there uh, just to see a bit of the history of the church. There's a man I know gave me a little tour of some historic religious sites in that part of Scotland. So these men came down, they influenced the assembly. One of the main differences between the Church of England and Church of Scotland was that the Church of Scotland ruled by elders, like we do today, as opposed to bishops. And the Church of England ruled with bishops. They had the bishop of this city and the bishop of that city and the Archbishop of Canterbury, for example, Uh, whereas uh, we don't uh, refer to our elders uh, by the title bishop uh, because we do not follow that system of government. Uh, But the monarchy was then restored in 1660 with the coronation of King Charles II and all of the documents of the assembly uh, were set aside by the Church of England, an Episcopal government was reinstated. And so King Charles I ended up uh, having his head uh, cut off. He was executed. And then there was a period uh, that uh, there was the protectorate. Oliver Cromwell was involved. Then in 1660, there was the restoration. King Charles II came upon the throne and he began to go down a path a little like his father. And he... Uh, did not agree with the uh, same freedom of religion. 1662 was the great ejection. Some ministers in Parliament who believed uh, in, you know, who believed in being nonconformist and setting aside the Book of Common Prayer after being told they must use it, they said no. They were ejected from their pulpits and could not preach in the pulpits that God had placed them in. So eventually, he gave way to King James. The second, uh, King James the uh, second, was uh, chased away by King William of Orange, King William the uh, third. There was a big battle took place 
in Ireland, the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, uh, James lost and uh, William took the throne. There was then the freedom uh, of religion and a freedom uh, to practice these things and uh, even greater freedom than they ever had uh, before. But the Directory for Public Worship was written in 1644, the Confession of Faith, 1648, and the Catechisms, 1648. We also had the Savoy Declaration, the Baptist Confession of Faith, and they were revisions of the Westminster uh, Standards uh, for the Congregational Churches and the uh, Baptist Churches as well. We we'll, don't have time to look at that. Uh, but then finally, benefiting from creeds, confessions, and catechisms. We've considered a lot of the history this morning and a little bit of the background of all these confessions and where they fit into regarding the denominations as well. But how do we benefit from them? Well, God's word always comes first. And we should desire a greater understanding of God's word. And when we come to such confessions, well, read and study and pray and meditate upon the truths. You can memorize the truths. Take maybe a catechism a week and think upon it or memorize it. Uh, get to know what it teaches. It's a great explanation of faith when it comes to talking to others about what you believe a particular doctrine teaches. You can talk to other believers. You can study together, talk about those truths. You can seek to find out more about the background of these documents and study uh, some of the great history that we have. And of course, believe and practice these truths. These are truths contained in Scripture. And we are to believe and practice these truths. We may not agree with every single thing in some of these confessions of faith. Uh, we can take the Lutheran confession specifically, for example. Uh, we may not agree with every single thing. Uh, but certainly when it comes to our own confessional standards, that is what we believe. That is what we practice. And uh, we look at the Word of God. We consider that. Uh, we look at the Ten Commandments and the catechisms, give an exposition of that. How we can look at sin and examine ourselves and live for Christ. And we are to believe and practice those truths. And so, and may the Lord enable us to do so. And may he bless us. And may uh, creeds and confessions not be some strange document that men passed hundreds of years ago. But maybe something that stirs our hearts. And we realize we need to understand these truths. We need to believe them. And practice them in our lives. May the Lord bless this morning. Let us pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy goodness and grace toward us. We pray that thou would bless and apply thy truth to our hearts. We thank thee for even this a summary of what took place in the history of the church. We thank thee, O God, that we can consider all of these things and consider how thou didst lead and guide. Uh, men of God, to formulate these truths and these creeds and confessions for the betterment of Christ's church, for that better understanding of doctrine as well. And Father, we pray that uh, we would have that desire to learn and to grow in knowledge, but that the Word of God would always remain our only rule of faith and practice. Uh, that as we consider the truths in creeds and confessions and catechisms, that it would lead us closer to Thee, and Lord, uh, that uh, we would uh, look at the great truths in Scripture and realize that these things are an echo of what the Word of God emphasizes to our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that would bless us, bless us as we come to worship this morning. 
And may we do so in spirit and in truth, we pray for Christ's sake. 